I did a short self-retreat at my home in Honolulu this year, and it was a, a short window of time. I haven't had time to do any retreats, many long retreats in the last few years. So this feeling of going into the retreat, it felt very precious. And yet, I felt so busy, it was hard for me to uh, feel like I was going to meet the deadline of the retreat starting. Just around that time where I was feeling like I wasn't going to be able to make it, uh, a friend of mine offered to bring me food for the retreat. Uh, And just that offering of someone, um, the generosity, the dana, was so important for me to kind of break through that feeling of of busyness and resistance. the, the generosity and the loving-kindness. And I felt like she wasn't just doing it to do it. She really wanted to do it. And that, that support really helped me. When we're on retreat, sometimes we go through so many ups and downs, we forget the amount of support we're getting, the, the, the generosity and the love that goes into this place and to being here. And if you can tune into that sometimes, it's really helpful when it gets difficult, it, it, because it's inspiring. It is really precious to be able to do this. We're really lucky. You know, most people, if you look at the human world, you know, most people's lives just don't even come close to having the concept of being able to do something like this. So for me, you know, that first day of sitting, I felt really happy that I had managed to get this time. And I felt the preciousness. I was really looking forward to the silence and the quiet. And I was, as I was sitting, I heard this huge truck roll up to the neighbor's house next door. Then I heard all these things being thrown off the truck, a lot of things, a lot of sound that I called noise at that time. So I was sort of hoping that that was it. And the next day, I started hearing hammering, 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 all day hammering, the next day hammering, hammering, hammering. And I snuck out and I looked out and I saw that this neighbor was re-roofing his whole roof. So that was my retreat. Hammering, hammering, hammering. And at first, when I heard that, and I realized that this was going to be my whole retreat, listening to that sound, I had so much aversion. You know, the, the sense of the preciousness and the wonderfulness of it shifted to, oh, I hate this, I don't, I don't want to. I didn't give up two weeks of my life to just listen to this man re-roof his house. <laughs> As I was doing it, and it was a Vipassana retreat, you know, there was that sense of being able to start opening to the aversion. It wasn't really um, the noise or the sound that was the problem. It was my own aversion to the sound that was the problem. And as I opened to the aversion, was able to experience it and be mindful of it, let it come and go, then I was able to start to listen to the sound and let that come and go. And over time, it was, one, it was fine. You know, the sound didn't bother me anymore. It was uh, 
joyful to just be sitting there, letting the sound come and go, let, uh, seeing that I'd overcome the aversion. At the end of the retreat, I uh, walked out and had a conversation with him. I felt like I had re-roofed the house with him. You know, I felt, I felt like we had done it together. And I, I felt so connected with him. And I, don't, I didn't know him very well, but he, I asked him, well, you know, what, what possessed you to re-roof the roof during my retreat? You know, I, I didn't say it like that, but, well, why did you decide to re-roof your uh, house? And he said that there had been a lot of rain and that the whole house was leaking and he couldn't afford to get somebody to do it, so he decided to do it himself. Uh, I felt really connected with him. I re- every time I walk by the house, <laughs> I feel like a, a connection and a joy. When you come by the annex for the rest of your life, you'll probably have the same feeling here, <laughs> that you'll feel like you were uh, part of the building of it. We are. You know, we tend to think that we're separate from that experience over there, that other people are doing it. but. We're all included in it. Every sound, you're part of it. There's a poem by Basho that says, Dewdrop, let me cleanse in your brief, sweet waters these dark hands of life. Dewdrop, let me cleanse in your brief, sweet waters these dark hands of life. Sometimes I think of the brief, sweet waters as this brief time that we have together on the retreat. At this point, you might not feel that it goes so quickly. <laughs> Actually, there was a, um, the youngest person on the retreat I was here for the weekend, and she told me the other day, Sunday, she had to leave, but she said, you know, Saturday was the longest day of my life. <laughs> And she said, I just didn't think I'd ever make it past lunch. (laughs) They're long. The days are long. We might not have that sense of the preciousness. Uh, And I I relate to those brief sweet waters in this this poem in many ways. The other way, besides the preciousness of, of being here, are the glimpses we get of the unconditional love are the glimpses we get of the peace that comes in the Vipassana practice. What we tend to see the first few days of the retreat are the wandering mind, the scattered mind. We tend to see the judging mind. How much do we judge our our moment-to-moment experience harshly or brutally? Over and over, the self-judgment we see, and we see the judgment of others. If it's not of ourself, it tends to be of others. There's the hindrances, the sleepiness and restlessness, that vast range of imbalances of energy, the doubt, the feeling that I can't do this, or it's too hard, or this practice isn't for me, the aversion, the attachment, 
the last retreat <coughs> that Stephen and I taught was in British Columbia at a beautiful retreat center named Hollyhock. It was raining a lot. It rained and rained and rained and rained and rained. <laughs> Over time, uh, there was a lot of mud on the paths. And there's, there's, it's not buildings like this where you can walk from your room to the hall and to eat and not have to go outside. This is a place where you have to walk pretty far to get from where you're staying to the meditation hall, another walk to the dining room. And there's paths. The paths were getting muddier and muddier. It was getting up to the top of my sneakers and the top of <clears throat> everybody's shoes. So this one woman decided halfway through the retreat that she couldn't, she couldn't take it anymore, that she wanted to go home and because she couldn't stand all the mud. So she went to the cook before she decided to go. And she went up to her and she said, what are you going to do about all the mud? <laughs> and the cook gave her the strangest look. And so she thought, well, maybe this is yogi mind. Yogi mind is when we kind of make a, a mountain out of a molehill. You know, we kind of get totally obsessed about one thing, and you, we can't let it go. And this is what happened for her. She got totally obsessed with the mud, and she couldn't see that she got lost in obsessing about the mud, and she couldn't let it go. So the look on the cook's face was so strange. She, she suspected that something was off. <laughs> so, so she just went back to practicing sitting, walking, but then she got totally caught in it again. And she just couldn't stand, she just thought there was going to be no more place to walk and that she couldn't do walking meditation. So she decided to go the next day, and that morning she went up to the cook again because she just was so obsessed about it. So she went up to the cook again and she said, But what are you going to do about all the mud? <laughs> and the cook just said, it's okay. We'll have maintenance take care of the mud. <laughs> and at that point, you know, she just had she just had this loving touch of, you know, don't worry, the maintenance is going to take care of the mud. She decided that she could go on. <laughs> So she didn't tell me about it until, you know, a couple of days later. But it was, I thought that was such an incredible example of how we get lost in something. And it's so hard to tell that we're really obsessing about something that you can't do anything about. But this, also I thought it was a great metaphor for the mud in our mind. You know, because about this time in the retreat, there'll be that feeling, well, what am I going to do about all this judging? Or, you know, what am I going to do about all this aversion? There's that feeling like that it's just so much. And, and it, I thought that we can always just think, well, we'll just have maintenance take care of it. <laughs> so if you're sleepy, just think, I'll just have maintenance take care of it. <laughs> There were many years that I did Vipassana before I attempted to do a metta retreat like this. One of the hardest things for me um, 
in the metta practice, but before was, was self-judgment. The judgment of others didn't feel nearly as hard to work with as my own self-hatred. When I was doing walking meditation, I would notice that uh, things would be going along okay, but then I'd have this sense that I could be so much deeper. And a doubting thought that would come up for me, and I would never see that it was doubt, was, am I working hard enough? And then I would believe that thought, and I'd get into that I wasn't working hard enough, and that if I just worked harder, that my practice would get so much better. And at that point, I would pick up a whip and just start, you know, whipping myself harder, work harder, work harder. And I wouldn't see that I was getting totally caught in doubt and self-hatred. Over years, and it took me years, I would start to notice that pattern of getting harder and harder in myself. And I would exaggerate that feeling of beating myself up, because that's what I would do. I would actually beat myself up mentally, but I wouldn't know it. And it would get to the point where I would just be brutal, and I wouldn't, I, it would have to be extreme before I would wake up. So as I started noticing that pattern, I would just imagine myself, actually, I'd imagine myself beating myself until I'd see kind of a pool of blood around myself. And that would be the point where I would say, oh, you know, this isn't very nice. You know, that's what it would take. It would just take a, a very strong image of what I was doing. And in the Vipassana practice, overseeing that over and over again, I put the whip down. And I really stopped. I just didn't want to do that to myself anymore. When I started the metta practice, I noticed that I had put the whip down, but I still didn't relate to myself with care. And there was a real big change in the way I related to that pattern, and that was huge. But my attitude about myself still wasn't one of care. It was kind of like, you know, <laughs> I was putting up with myself not any kind of tenderness or warmth. Recently, I had a memory of maybe, you know, there's a, my family conditioning is a bit intense, but I remembered one time, uh, well, where did I learn that? You know, how did, how do we learn that? When I was in high school, the last two years of high school, I lived by myself, except that once a week, my father would come home for about 20 minutes. That was the pattern. <laughs> He'd come in for a little visit. Uh, so this was midwinter, and he came in for his little visit, and I would just sort of, we didn't relate much. It was like, hi, and he'd go in and do something and leave. So he came in, and I was watching, I was, you know, pretending to do my homework, but I was watching television. So I was watching television. He went in the bathroom, and then he, he brought something out to the porch, went in the bathroom, brought something out to the porch, and I thought, well, that's a little strange, but life was always a little strange in my family, so I didn't question it. So I just kept doing what I was doing. And then at a certain point, it stopped. His movement stopped. And suddenly I had this very strange feeling. So I went in the bathroom, and I saw a lot of, some blood, and I thought, well, that's strange. And I didn't see my father, so I went into the porch. And there were lots of towels just soaked in blood. So I thought, ooh. So I ran into the bedroom, and he was lying there, and he'd passed out, and he was bleeding to death. You know, it was incredible. So I called an ambulance. My father went off in the ambulance. 
And I never really realized until I started doing the metta, you know, that he'd never, he would rather, he just learned that it was better to lead to death than to reach out. You know, and that, that's a, you know, you can imagine what he learned from his father or from his father. It was like just feeling that sense of, you know, what would it take for my father to say, I need help. And that, you know, I just feel, even now, you know, it's so hard for him. He can't, he can't do that. And we have to look at that in ourselves. We, we've inherited, that might be, you know, intense story, but I think a lot of us learn to relate to ourselves um, in a way that we don't, we don't care unless it's just this extreme need. We don't, we don't listen. We don't listen to what our body says. We don't listen to what the emotions say. Uh, we learn that, and we can learn something else. Like the first night of the retreat, I was saying that we, we can learn metta. We, we don't have to think that we're supposed to be born with it. You know, either you know, we're supposed to be Mozart, and, and that, that's it. Either we're Mother Teresa or forget it. <laughs> now that tends to be how we relate to metta or unconditional love, that somehow it's either there or it isn't. We can learn it. That's what we're doing here. One of the things that we tend to see in doing the metta practice and to remember that it's a mirror it's a mirror for our relationship to ourself. It's a mirror for our relationship to others. So we'll tend to see conditional love when we look at ourselves or others in metta practice. We will tend to see that rather than the unconditional love. We'll get those glimpses of the unconditional love. We'll touch into that purity, like those brief sweet waters in Basho's poems. And then we'll see the dark hands of life. We'll see the, un, the conditional love. So the conditional love is like, if I relate to myself, I'll love you if I'm happy. I'll love myself if I'm happy. I'll love myself if I'm healthy. I'll love myself if I'm not sick. I'll love myself if I don't grow old. I love myself if I'm not pudgy. You know, I love myself if I'm not angry. I love myself if people like me. I love myself if, if I'm perfect, if I don't make any mistakes. Does that ring any bells? <laughs> <laughs> and that tends to be what you'll start to see, that if, 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 if. That's the conditional love. I'll love this person next to me if they don't sneeze. You know? <laughs> I'll love them if they don't move much. It's just this endless, endless judging, judging, judging that we'll start to see. I'll love myself on this retreat if I'm not sleepy. And how do you relate to yourself when you're sleepy? You know, we tend to think of cruelty as something that happens in Yugoslavia. Uh, but if you listen to your own mind, you'll see that we can be very cruel. I love, what do you, how do you relate to anger in yourself? 
How do you relate to desire, to restlessness, to doubt? How are you relating to the hindrances when they come up? And this is what's so wonderful about metta because it's such a powerful mirror for how we relate to these, these parts of ourselves. Unconditional love is truly without conditions. You know, it's I love myself right now no matter what. No matter if, you know, no matter what a jerk I am. You know, no matter what a schmuck I am. No matter how wonderful I am. No matter how neutral I am. It's just that there's that unconditional acceptance, unconditional tenderness. One of the things that I feel that we've inherited in maybe on the planet is a is a, a perfection model in spiritual traditions. Uh, so if we follow a path, a spiritual path, we're supposed to just keep going up and up and up and up. We're supposed to keep getting happier and happier and happier and happier. Uh, and what if what if what if depression happens? And if you believe that model, you'll feel like you failed the model, you know, that something's wrong with you. Because it can't be the system, right? You know, we're just supposed to just keep going up and up and up. But I think that we're in a time now on the planet where we're wanting more than that. We want to be whole. We want to have not just this perfection model, but a, a, a spirituality that includes the emotional world. It includes the body. It includes that, that life goes up and down. Uh, and that there can be a happiness and a peace with that if it includes all of us. Uh, for me, there were times during my metta retreat where I would be really able to say the phrases, may I be safe and protected uh, from inner and outer harm. And when I would really mean it, uh, and the concentration and energy were really on, there's nothing that feels more wonderful. And there were times when I couldn't do that, and I had to shift to these other phrases, may I be happy just as I am. May I be peaceful no matter what's happening. May I love myself completely. Those phrases just came spontaneously over time. They just, they really helped me through the times where I, I wasn't loving myself unconditionally. It's really important that, that it's, okay, it's okay to be going through difficulty in the retreat. It's okay. Uh, to, to shift the phrases to phrases that help you love yourself unconditionally when you're feeling so conditional. A lot of the practice for me, the metta practice, was reinforcing that sense of reassurance that it's really okay to be where we are. You know, if sleepiness is happening, it's okay. If anger's happening, it's okay. If doubt is happening, it's okay. All we have to do is try experiencing it. And if the teaching is in the metta practice that you keep going with the metta phrases, if you can, like we've been saying, uh, and you keep going with the person that you're with. If you can't, you shift to yourself. If there's pain coming up, 
it's wonderful to shift to yourself. You can send metta to the anger. You can send metta to the sleepiness or to yourself. And then if, you, if that doesn't work, you go to vipassana. And shifting, backing off like that isn't a failure. It's not like uh, it's a proof that yet again <laughs> we're no good at this. Backing off is a form of metta. And the reason I love the practice so much is because that backing off would reinforce metta for ourselves. You know, it's okay if this doesn't work, try this. It's okay that something doesn't work, that we try something else. It brings in that feeling of choice and creativity and trusting what works for us. That that learning how to do this and being able to go through this process of not of confusion and not being so sure what's right will strengthen your own resources, your own wisdom to know what to do. If you shift back to Vipassana and are just learning how to be with sleepiness, for example, mindfulness of sleepiness is first just exploring the sensations of sleepiness. It, what's, what, how do the eyes feel? Do they feel heavy? Does the body feel light? Probably not. The body often will feel more heavy or cement-like. And it's just being able to open to those sensations, experience them, just to note, mental note, sleepy, sleepy, and try experiencing it. Often if we catch it soon enough, that shifting to observing it and being able to be with it uh, changes it. If, if it doesn't, um, sometimes when I was doing the metta practice, I would, um, I've mentioned this to some people, I really played with the image because an image came pretty easily to me. So if I was with me, you'd be strong and healthy of body. I would remember the person I was doing and I would think of a time when I saw this person uh, walking in the rain, and I'd bring that image in. I'd just change, I'd play with the imagery. I would play, or you can change the feeling tone of the person with, with different phrases. Play with it. If you need to open your eyes, open your eyes. You can start uh, slowing down the phrases, speeding up the phrases. Uh, You'll find ways to work with it. And it's okay to open your eyes. It's okay to stand up for a while if it gets strong. At a certain point, sleepiness will come in so strong. Uh, our teacher Upandita called this, this way of working with sleepiness graceful surrender. You know, that <laughs> there are times when you've tried everything that you can do. And it's time to just let that wave, the waves of sleepiness come. You really do experience it then, <laughs> very fully. We don't die of that. You know, it's not like sleepiness is ever going to kill us. It's funny because we get into this whole thing of resisting it and struggling with it, and it's just sleepiness. Restlessness, doubt, aversion, attachment are all the same. You can go through that process of exploring it, being mindful. What is, what is anger? What's the experience of it? Free from any idea about it. And what are the physical sensations? What does the mental state feel like? It's just being interested in it, 
If you look at all the hindrances, there's a way in which it's the resistance to them that's so painful. And once we get into this place of accepting, the metta helps with that, the just accepting that it's there. That softening usually helps us um, sink into the experience. The mindfulness is, is noting, you know, aversion, anger, whatever it is, or attachment, wanting, the wanting mind. We tend to think that we have to do something about these experiences. If wanting comes, we tend to think we have to get the person, or get the chocolate, or get the job, or get whatever it is that we're wanting. We tend to be so conditioned to think we have to get it. Or if we're not wanting something, like the sound of that man roofing his house, or not wanting self-hatred, or not wanting the pain in the knee, not wanting whatever it is. We tend to think we have to get rid of the experience. And the revolution that happens with mindfulness is that ability to say, oh, maybe I can just try experiencing this. I don't have to go after what I'm wanting. I don't have to get rid of what I'm not wanting. And then one starts to learn to let these experiences happen And by letting them happen, they move. Life moves. The only thing that sticks is our mind. You know, we grab on. We say, no, I don't want this. And that stops life. Or I want this. We grab on and it stops it. And when when there's that opening to the experience, the experience will move. You can't stop it. Sometimes on a retreat, it'll feel like sleepiness isn't moving, (laughs) but it will. (laughs) Or whatever it is that's giving us a hard time, it'll feel like it has a a permanent nature. But if you look closely, over 24 hours, you'll see that you had some awake moments. (laughs) Look for those. The word gradual, I think, is important in the metta practice because what I saw for myself is that gradually, over time, my attitude toward myself changed. Gradually, over time, the, the judging started to melt more, and the belief in the judging. And that, that reflected on my uh, openness and acceptance of others that ability to love ourselves no matter what is strengthening. It's healing. Especially when it's difficult. You know, as we know, when, we, when things are easy, when you're, when you're feeling the metta, or when, you're, when it's effortless, or when it's kind of going well, it's not so hard to love ourselves. If you look closely at that, it's that we tend to identify with the easy times, the effortless times. We make an interpretation about ourselves according to what's happening. So when it's easy, effortless, light, wonderful, we tend to think we're great. The practice is going great, therefore I'm great. We do this all the time. 
or almost all the time. And then when we hit the hard times, sleepy, aversion, wanting, multiple hindrance attacks, sleepiness, restlessness, doubt, aversion, attachment, all within five minutes. You know, that can happen. And then there's this interpretation about ourselves. I'm no good. I hate myself. Uh, and that, that's a real important to see, that constantly changing process of, it's good, I'm a great yogi. It's going bad, I'm a terrible yogi. And then often it's, I'm good, I'm a great yogi, I want to sit for the next three-month retreat, I want to sit for the next three-month retreat. And then it'll be, it's bad, in fact, I'm no good at this, why am I here? (laughs) You'll be like that woman who wanted to go home with all the mud. It's just, the mind becomes, it just contracts, we don't want to do it anymore. How many, how many days are left in the retreat? Nobody knows? <laughs> Usually we know. When things aren't so good, I would always know how many days were left in a retreat. <laughs> there were some retreats where I'd know how many minutes were left. <laughs> there were some retreats where, <laughs> there was one retreat I was on there, I was having such a hard time. During the talk, I had a little notebook and I would, multiply how many seconds were left <laughs> you know it's okay that kept me going and some <laughs> on that particular retreat it was so hard that i would just in case i made a mistake i would do it again <laughs> and i'd do it three times and then it would take about 10 minutes to do that and be like oh well <laughs> I'll have to be with whatever it was again. Mindfulness helps us see that what's happening in the moment isn't personal. The metta will help us to soften into that experience. And I've seen that sometimes the mindfulness will help me have more metta, and sometimes I'll find the metta will help me have more mindfulness. They're both really important, and they both complement each other. An example of that is uh, recently I was having some difficulty with some friends, and I didn't realize how rejected I was feeling. And I was taking the situation quite personally, but I just, I didn't know I was doing it. And there was a sitting that I was doing recently where I I looked more closely and I saw that I was feeling like this whole situation that had happened was my fault. And I didn't see it. I didn't see that I was doing that. And I felt that um, even when I looked at it, I could see that I could have, done better (laughs) at the situation. One could say I even made some mistakes. Uh, But I was so identified with that it was my fault and I didn't know it. This is where I've seen a lot of change for myself because in situations like that, uh, I would get so, again, so hard on myself. Uh, That feeling of rejection would take over and I'd withdraw from people. Totally. I'd be so afraid of the feeling of getting rejected. And that sense of seeing that pain again, oh, it's all my fault. 
<laughs> I made mistakes, I'm no good. And then there's just that metta that will come in. It's okay. This unconditional love, loving myself just as I am. In some ways I say that it's gradual, but the first time I did a long metta retreat was in 1990. I could say that there's been a 100% change in six years. So in some ways that's not so gradual. And that's really fast. That's how powerful that change from almost always relating to myself with self-hatred uh, to having that sense of when I, would, when I see that it's all my fault, I'm no good, nobody loves me, guess I'll eat some worms, you know that. <laughs> it just goes into that. <laughs> it's, it's wonderful to see that shift. That metta in that situation for myself <clears throat> helped me to accept the situation and to be mindful of it. So see, the, the, it can work different ways. The metta can help you uh, relax into the not taking what's happening pers- personally. <coughs> to remember that we learn to do this. We're not born learning to do this. Sometimes I find it helpful, and I love to do this, is to try to learn something different, just to remember how hard it is to learn anything, you know, well. So this year, I had a little bit of time at home, and I took the flower arranging class that I told you about, which I, one could say I had a little more talent for. And then this other class I took was a weightlifting class which one could say I have not much aptitude for. (laughs) So this class was for people who have a low back pain. And the teacher is quite macho, and you know, she'll just kind of lift a 70-pound dumbbell on each hand, just kind (laughs) of, that's without warming up. She's, She's really worked at this for 20 years, so she's very into it. And all the people in the class are kind of jock-like and really into it. And I'm really out of my element, you know, just completely out of my element. The only way I survive the class is being the class clown. So, for example, sometimes there's this one man that would be looking in the mirror, you know, and kind of going like this, and he'd say, I'm afraid I'm getting too big. And he'd mean it, you know, he was afraid he was getting too big, so I'd kind of go up behind him and go, <laughs> I'm afraid I'm getting too big. My clothes don't even fit anymore. They're, <laughs> they're getting so big. But <laughs> really, this class, I call it the torture class. I, I actually hate it because I'm so bad at doing it. I don't, I don't connect with whatever this teacher tells me to do. My muscle just doesn't do it. There's no connection there. And it takes just so long for me. It took me three weeks to find what they call lats. There, there are these things here, but I, I just could never find them. <laughs> so everyone, just remember, everyone has been in this class for a year, so I'm, I'm starting behind. <laughs> 
And when you uh, take the class, she has the other people in the class spot you, and she, she works with one little small group, but there's a lot of different groups. So one day, she yelled at the top of her lungs. She tends to yell a lot, and she yelled to the other people that were working with me at the top of her lungs. Everybody stopped and listened. Michelle can't possibly do more than one thing at a time. This is, she just yelled at she, she can't possibly concentrate on her abs or her butt muscles. Just forget her abs, forget her butt muscles. Just try to help her find her lats. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Every day she's so deflating, you know, it's so deflating. It's, it's just so hard on my self-esteem, it's incredible. <laughs> so finally she just kept yelling and yelling. She came over and she's kind of hitting my lats, like, those are your lats, those are your lats. <laughs> and when she hits my lats, it's like it makes it worse. I can't relax at all. So I finally turned to her and I said, this is too hard. I hate this class. I can't do this. This is too hard. And I almost started crying. And then she just, she just, she'll go right back at me. She said, Michelle, this is hard for everybody. And she, and she said, in fact, this, hard, this class is harder for everybody because I, I expect more of them than I expect of you. <laughs> <laughs> So I thought she was just kind of giving me a hard time. So at the end of the class, I went up to every person. I was having such a hard time that day. I went up to every person and I said, is this class harder for you than for me? <laughs> and I felt kind of shy, but I just really, I was having such a hard time. I wanted to check it out. So I went up to every person and I said, is this class harder for you than it is for me? And they said, yeah. She does, you know, she, she does expect much more from us than she does of you. <laughs> and just when you start learning one thing, she'll make it tougher. She just makes it tougher. She makes it tougher. She never lets you, like, glide even on a day. She'll make it tougher, tougher, tougher. Um, and I think, for me, that experience is really important in relationship to teaching and in just in relationship to letting you all know that it's hard to do this. If it's new, it's really hard to do something new. But this could be your third metta retreat, and each metta retreat is different, and sometimes it can get harder. If you're learning, if you're growing, uh, if, you're, if you're playing your edge, uh, it's not so easy to look at yourself. This is a mirror. And I think that when we're older students, just like in that class, everybody kind of knew where their lats were, they knew where their abs were, they had, they knew how to lift, they knew where to put their hands in the bars. I'm still not sure where to put my hands in the bar. Um, there are all those basic things that they would know how to do, and I, I didn't know how to do. And of course, there's these basic hindrances that older students will be able to go, oh yeah, doubt. A new student, it'll take two hours to figure out that doubt is happening. So there's the basic ropes that are easier for older students, but then the, 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 deeper, the deeper stuff will appear more, and it can get harder. So we're all, we're all uh, fellow sufferers. You know, there's a way in which we all have our stuff to work with. When you look at people on a retreat, 
everyone else looks like they're okay. Yeah? (laughs) You'll look around and peek around when you're sitting and they all look so good. And you feel like you're the only one who it's hard for. And when you're walking and you look around, it doesn't look like anyone else is having a hard time, unless they're really losing it. (laughs) But generally, people, it looks like we're the only people to ourselves that are having a hard time. So you don't have to go up to everyone and ask them if it's hard for you than it is for me. I recommend to keep the silence, but it's true. With practice, I actually found my lap. And then in the flower arranging class I took, what she was emphasizing was to be able to look at a flower or a leaf and see the beauty in it, see the beautiful angle. After a few weeks of that class, it was amazing how my view of things changed. And everything, I would would go for a walk and I would see plants differently, (coughs) trees differently. And then suddenly I was looking at people differently. All from just, you know, an hour or two a week of doing that class, suddenly with practice, it was applying to people's faces. I was seeing, finding the beauty in each face in a way that I hadn't done before. Metta is the same way. It's just with practice, with, with the weightlifting, with the flower arranging, with unconditional love. That's what we're doing. We're learning. And sometimes when we're learning, I couldn't tell in two months that anything much was happening with flower arranging. I couldn't see much difference in my arrangements. Tomorrow, you might not see that much difference than today. But I can assure you, over time, there'll be change. It's just hard to measure it or fathom it when you're in it, when you're practicing. I have a a student that about three years ago was doing metta, and she couldn't do it for anyone else but herself. And she had a very strong Catholic background, and she felt that it was really selfish to do it for herself and not for others. And yet, whenever she would shift, like after 5, 10, 15 minutes to the benefactor or dear friend, she couldn't do it. There'd be, just couldn't do it. So she started asking me, is it really okay to do myself? And I'm like, yeah, if that's what, if that's what, if that's where you're connecting and you can't, you, that's what you have to do and just see what happens. One year went by and she'd call me. She'd need reassurance so much. She'd say, you sure it's okay? (laughs) Are you sure it's okay to be doing myself? It's like, yeah, it's really okay. Two years went by. Three years went by. And she was doing a retreat last year. In the middle of the retreat, at the end of a sitting, she raised her hand, and there were tears of joy coming down her face. I could see it. And she raised her hand. She said, I could do somebody else. She said it was like it, it just got so full inside me that it just naturally spilled over. And I had to do somebody else. That was three years. And it was just incredible to feel that. You know, I feel like I trust this process so much. I knew that would happen. You know, you don't know when. And it's just to trust where you are with it. It could be 
for me, I did it differently. I did it for myself for a long, you know, for some time, then I'd work with a benefactor. And then what happened is that over years, I started needing to do myself more. It'll happen differently for all of you. Stephen and Carol and I try to give a broad, you know, range of choice because it will be different. Uh, trust it. Trust how it's working for you. Even one thought of metta is incredibly powerful. If we wish someone well, or ourselves well, even if there's no feeling, it's very profound. It's very different than if the mind is just wandering or fantasizing. It's a very powerful thought. It's very different than a thought like, I don't want this, or I want that, or I can't do this. May you be safe and protected. May you be happy. They're really important words. There's a lot of meaning in it. The ability to wish this is very significant. And maybe the metta will still feel conditional. That's okay. It doesn't invalidate it. It, it just keeps going. There'll be many times where you'll feel like it isn't totally pure. I would be doing the benefactor a lot, and I'd, I'd be wanting metta from her. And that's why it would be easy for me to do this person. A benefactor or a dear friend, you'll find that they're probably not a rejecting type or a real angry type. They're probably a kind of loving, nice person. And we do that type because it's easy. We'll feel the metta with that person. We'll feel it from that person. So if there's a little bit of wanting from that person, it's okay at times. You know, you'll feel the conditionality of it. Or you might feel like there's an affirmation or a supplication to the, the, the metta. It's not totally pure. May I be strong and healthy of body. If I say that for myself, sometimes I'll be wanting a result from that, rather than just the wish. There's that, still that conditionality on it. It's okay. Wherever you are with it, there's a power to this. And if you just keep it going, keep it going, keep it going, there'll be times that you drop to a deeper level. You'll drop to a deeper level of understanding, a deeper level of intention. Most of the time, our motivation is mixed. And what you start uncovering on the retreat is you start seeing all the levels of, of intention. You'll see all the conditional love, and then you'll feel like at times you'll uncover the deeper love. So have, as Carol was talking last night, it takes patience, but you'll have those glimpses of the deeper love if you keep going, just keep going. Try not to invalidate when it isn't that. It still has power. The image that the Buddha used of <clears throat> unconditional love, this first Brahma Vihara, of a mother cow giving birth 
to a newborn calf. When I first started doing the metta, I would imagine for myself a, a mother cow kind of licking me with a big, scratchy tongue. And for you, that might not be an image that seems appealing. (laughs) But for me, that felt really cozy. (laughs) And as I did the metta, and I started to feel what the Buddha meant by that image, it's, it's, it's such a powerful image. He didn't use a human being. He used a mother cow. And just that depth of purity upon a mother cow looking upon her newborn calf, and that just what that, that cow, mother cow, would feel upon that giving birth. And that's what we're learning to wish for ourselves. You know, just, the, just to get the concept of that is amazing, that we have this possibility of relating to ourselves like that. And that we have the possibility of relating to another being, a human being like that, just like a mother cow giving birth to a newborn calf. It's so incredible. It's so incredible to get the time to practice it. It's, it's worth every difficult sitting. It's worth uh, the ups and downs of a retreat, even if we just got the concept of it in this world. But we'll get much more than that. We get to experience it. Last year, at the end of the three-month retreat, a good friend of ours, son, died. And I think that in this world, the biggest pain is a child dying for a parent. So I was invited to go to the funeral and do some metta at the funeral. Over 500 people were in the church. And just before I was to do the metta, a lot of uh, his teenage friends were talking about him and. It was a, the most poignant point in the funeral. It was incredible, probably the most amazing funeral I'd ever been to. So at the point that I had to go up, there were just, everybody was sobbing and sobbing. Uh, and it was very hard to go up there and try to pull it together and just shift that energy of grief into the metta. Uh, but I trust the metta a lot. So I was just, started by asking people to make an offering to him, to offer any wishes they had for him. And what's interesting about metta is that everybody understands that. You know, everyone in that building could understand uh, that they could send him whatever wishes. And I just started with any wishes and then the deepest wishes that they wanted for him. And as it just changed, as the energy changed and it got stronger and stronger, the whole room was just filled with this loving kindness. And it got so strong that I almost fell over, you know, because I was in front of everyone. They were like everyone in front of me. The force of it was so strong, (laughs) it's like I couldn't stand up and I had to hold on to this podium. And for months, literally months, 
the power of that energy stayed with me. It just the waves of it, the waves of it for, with that many people in such a deep place doing it. When I come in this hall, it's like that. It's like every, you won't feel it because you don't leave it. But when I come in, there are times when I'll sit down and I'll just think, oh, I'm going to do Vipassana. I don't want to do Metta. <laughs> and then I'll sit here for a few minutes and it just, it's so strong in here. It's just, I just start doing it because it's so easy. It's there. It's so tangible. And remember again that when you're in it, you can't fathom where you are, but it's already just so strong in here. It's wonderful. It's wonderful uh, to be here with you with it. So thank you. Thank you for working so hard. It's very strong already. Let's sit for a few minutes.